that all you got? And welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast dedicated to exploring the black sheeps of cinema. I'm your co-host Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Hulk Hogan home video enthusiast, Andrew Hulkmania Phillips! Yeah! <laughs> uh, just, uh, I need to get a better shot of that clip there. You watch my home movies, bro. <laughs> my home movies. And this week, we're telling comic book movie makers to don't make them mediocre, because we won't like them when they're mediocre, as we take on <laughs> The Incredible Bulk. Uh, I mean, Hulk. The Amazing Bulk. That's what <laughs> it is. It's the Amazing Bulk, isn't it? <laughs> oh, dear. I've got a problem. There are aspects of my personality that I can't control. See a shrink. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Bruce, trust me when I tell you, I've heard them all. Not this one. Louis Leterrier... Louis Leterrier... Louis French name brings us 2008's The Incredible Hulk, a movie for audiences who thought Ang Lee's Hulk had too much story and character development. So, Andy, with the imminent release of Black Panther at cinemas everywhere, and uh, we have the home video release of Thor Ragnarok just at the end of the month, yeah, yeah. we threw down the choice of doing a Marvel film, and you came up with The Incredible Hulk. I threw Hulk into the mix, but no, you said the, the, we are sticking with <laughs> The Incredible Hulk. Hulk. Yeah. yeah. So this is your choice for this week's episode, and I want you to tell me why, why, why have you subjected me to this piece of shit film? Well, I thought both of them would be good to cover, and it might be good to cover the Hulk, uh, Hulk at some other point It's going to be hard time. to actually approach these two films and talk yeah. about them, because it's hard to refer to Hulk as just Hulk. Yeah, but I felt for the purposes of this podcast being best forgotten movies i thought that ang lee's hulk was probably better remembered than the incredible hulk partly due to sort of the prestige of it being ang lee's hulk partly due to the quite it was quite had quite a disappointing reaction when it first came out and also the fact that it it stands apart from all these other sort of clump of superhero films sort of post 2008 really it kind of is a standalone film so obviously it was much much earlier I think people just remember it more for what it didn't deliver, really. Mm-hmm. Whereas this kind of delivers on some of those things, but not. And also because it is part of the MCU, just about. Barely. But within the pantheon of all the MCU films, it's the least remembered. And also, I'd imagine younger fans of the MCU who were too small to watch these films when they first came out, mm-hmm. they may not even know that this is even part of the MCU. I know they released the Phase 1 and 2 box sets over Christmas, and I imagine that might have puzzled a few younger viewers <laughs> going, what's this incredible... They made an incredible yeah. Hulk film? Because I imagine most people's experiences of the Hulk now are from sort of Mark Ruffalo's interpretation from the Avengers onwards. And because that's basically a new actor, and they sort of rewrote the Hulk's backstory basically rebooted him again in that film and he's gone on since to become quite prominent I feel like this is just like a weird offshoot it does feel like that like it is a weird offshoot and the only way that I have seen this film directly referenced in the MCU is by the inclusion of William Hurt as General Thunderbolt Ross 
Yeah. Uh, that's the only real holdover from this film. And I remember in S.H.I.E.L.D. episode one, season one, the only episode of it I've watched, <laughs> they do make mention of Abomination being kept in a locker somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, other than William Hurt, there is nothing in this film that is essential to understanding the Hulk, at no. least the interpretation of the Hulk from the Avengers onwards. Once Josh Whedon came in and redeveloped the character, mm. it became essentially its own thing. They even, I mean, we'll get into this later, but even in the way in which they approach where we find Bruce Banner at the beginning of Avengers, they essentially retcon where he is at the end of The Incredible Hulk. Mm. And we essentially find him in the exact same place as he was at the beginning of The Incredible Hulk, yeah, having yeah. developed not at all. But um, I guess that's something we'll get into later. So this is not your first time watching The Incredible Hulk, I take it? No, I think I saw it. It was a while ago. It was definitely before I saw the the Mark Ruffalo version. Or maybe even the the Ang Lee one, because I don't think I saw that at all for a long, long time. Like I say, my relationship with superhero movies is one of kind of, I dabble, but I'm not gung-ho for or anything. It's, yeah. it's something, if something sparks my interest, I'll go and see it. But mm-hmm. because there's so many now, it's just, even some of the good ones sort of slip me by because I'm just like, oh, well, there's I, so I, many now. I'm in exactly the same place as you when it comes to superhero movies. And I think it's fair for our audience to just lay that down on the line in that There was one point in my life where I was a huge fan of superhero movies because they did feel like events and there weren't as many as there are today. But nowadays, I don't have that anymore. And I think one reason is because I think tastes grow and develop and change all the time anyway. And that's happened with me. But also because, like you say, we are oversaturated with superhero movies at the moment and they no longer feel like events. They no longer feel essential. Like you say, even the good ones. You get the feeling that you go see it, you enjoy it, and then you leave the cinema and it's gone forever until the next one comes along in a couple of months' time. Or a month's time. (laughs) Or a a week's time in some cases. And I guess I do not feel the impact of these superhero movies anymore. They no longer feel like events to me. They just feel like a way to pass an hour and a half, two hours. Or I guess they're always overlong, about four hours. Yeah, yeah, they're always 20 minutes too long. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, they kind of they don't have anticipation or impact these days. Do you think there's a worry that Star Wars might go that way? I think it's already going that way. I I, I do feel it already. Just watching that Han Solo trailer and going, oh god, we're going here. I mean, I felt like watching Rogue Rogue One One. and, and, and. I suppose Last Jedi, ooh, controversial thoughts here, Last Jedi brought it back a bit for me because it felt like a little bit more daring and made by a mm-hmm. filmmaker. Like it or lump it, there In are fact, risks the fact that it's had such Jedi. a reaction is, is good. I think people, they kind of forget that the films that are remembered the most are usually the ones that have the most strong reaction and the ones that everybody liked when they came out are the usually the ones that are forgotten most because they're actually not that remarkable. They just sort yeah. of had something that everybody liked. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, for me personally, I can say the same thing thing about uh, the first Avengers movie for me which is a solid three out of five film yeah. for me it's not particularly remarkable I mean it's quite skillful how they managed to sort of get all these elements together but essentially it's a film with three set pieces with a bit of connected tissue I will say this about the Avengers though the Avengers is not the best film in the MCU by far I, yeah, I yeah. think for me I think they've grown since then. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And and it looks kind of quaint almost. I mean, The Incredible Hulk looks incredibly (laughs) quaint even further. But The uh, the Avengers does look quaint now compared to where the series has gone since. But actually, in terms of anticipation, The Avengers was the last time I remembered approaching a film in this series as being an event film. I haven't had that since. I think it's because it was new. Like, no one had ever done a film like that before. 
they tried it. Obviously, DC had tried and failed before with trying to do their Justice League mm-hmm. movie a long, long time ago. And yeah, no one had tried it. So yeah, it was new. It was fresh. In a weird way, all the other films leading up to it felt like trailers. Yes, for they, this did. Film. they did. Like, I remember there was always a running joke as well. Like Marvel's latest trailer for the <laughs> Avengers movie has come out. Yeah. I think usually in reference to either Thor or Captain America. Yeah, those were films where the yeah. first half was spent building up the character, the origin stories. And then the second half was just a trailer for yeah, come back next time in the yeah. Avengers. Because I feel like Iron Man 2 kind of destroyed a bit of the goodwill. Yeah. Because it did feel so sort of subservient to the the bigger picture rather than being a film of its own. Which obviously is one of the reasons why John Perrault has never directed another film Mm -hmm. since. There's a lot of there were a lot of problems on that film and it feels like now it's kind of a shame in a way though because I feel like because there's been so many I feel like the quality of a lot of the films that have been making recently has been better like oh far better they've, they've yeah. a lot more individual got more sort of proper filmmakers on board mm-hmm. it felt less like a TV movie kind of thing yeah. um, but at the same time because they're so often I mean there's going to be three out this year you still get that kind of fatigue and sort of oh it doesn't feel very special yeah and I mean when we look at the three that are being released this year as well we have Black Panther which is probably the one that I am looking forward to most Mm. the Avengers Infinity War curiously it's not exciting me as much as it should because we have seen this type of film done several times with watching other studios do it now there's nothing that special now to just throw in all these characters together and having them fight something I think we've been spoiled almost by films like Guardians of the Galaxy films like Thor Ragnarok films like uh, Captain America Winter Soldier that have more than just aesthetic pleasure but also have like thematic depth narrative depth character depth Mm. there's something going on on character levels that when we do get to these films where it's essentially just throwing all these characters on the screen and having them hit each other Mm. it loses something for me that's the reason I'm not really that excited about I keep on going to call it Age of Ultron Infinity War but I'm I'm sure it'll be fine I'm sure it'll be fine yeah yeah but then there'll be the next one next year anyway. Like I just look at the cast list of that one and go, fuck, how are they even going to have anybody have some sort of arc or, or proper story through? Because it, unlike the Avengers, which feels so, yeah, it does feel really quaint in comparison now. The cast list for this, what, Avengers 3 is just mental. I'm like, worried be that like it's just going to be... miss it cameo. That's it. I'm worried that it's just going to be a cameo movie. Yeah. So going back from films that have too much content to a film that has <laughs> not enough content, exactly. back to those quaint times, we sort of we zoom right back now to 2008 as we celebrate the 10th anniversary of the mm. MCU. As I kind of worked out whilst I was watching, it, I was going, "Oh shit!" This film came out almost 10 years ago. That makes me feel old. I feel I remember it coming out like it was yesterday. Yeah, yeah. This came about a few was it a few months after Iron Man. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this is very, very early days MCU when it kind of really wasn't even an MCU yet. They were kind of mm-hmm. very unsure as to where it was going to go. It's probably Iron Man 2 where it really sort of started to become the MCU properly. Yes, I mean, they did start the MCU with, they always called it the five-year plan, mm. which was the five-year plan building up to the Avengers. And I know that they did stick to that rather rigidly, but... In a weird way, The Incredible Hulk actually feels like an anomaly in that regard because... Yeah, it just feels like it's been bolted on. doesn't feel like it's part of that plan. It does because we might as well get into the quality of this film now. But it does feel like it's trying to have its cake and eat it too in regards to its approach to the MCU. But also it's trying to be a continuation of Hulk as well. Yeah, We find our Bruce Banner character essentially at the place that we found our... Eric Banner version of that character at the end of Hulk. 
Mm. So they're trying to push this idea to audiences that it's it's a soft sequel slash reboot. Yeah, it's a requel, as they said at the time. So it's almost dragging Hulk into the MCU, but just keeping at enough of a distance that they can cut it off at a moment's notice. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it did originally start off as a straight sequel yeah. to Hulk. And then as the reaction of that film became what it was, I feel like they got cold feet at following that up directly. Mm -hmm. And uh, it kind of slowly morphed into the kind of reboot that's still kind of a sequel at the same time, Mm -hmm. but with all new actors and a different look and a different concept, a different kind of uh, inspiration that it draws from. This is really sort of paying more homage to the TV series than... Definitely. Even a a audio homage at one point. Craig Armstrong's music does that do-do-do-do. Sad, yeah, sad yeah. walking away music. I mean, also the look of things like the look of the gamma ray machine. The gamma ray machine. The, the yeah. weird thing that you sits in. Yeah, I still don't know what the point of that machine was. No, I've actually. never worked that out. It just is one of those things. It's like, don't ask. Mm. I think Hulk actually goes more into detail about what that machine is for, but this film is, all the science surrounding that is more peripheral. It's it's all just kind of resting. They're not interested in that part of it. And the guy who plays the pizza guy was the voice on the 60s cartoon show. Oh, really? I I thought in the way that they framed his character, they framed the actor like he was somebody who mattered. Yeah. (laughs) I I did not recognize him for anything. And so I was just kind of left at a loss as to who this person was. I like the fact he's called Stanley as well stanley's pizza place actually it's talking about stanley i do think it has probably one of the best stanley cameos it does but i always think that they leave it too early they one need step to do something too early yeah I, li- I like the idea of it it's better than some of the other ones that they've done since where oh definitely like, oh god there's some really questionable stanley cameos in some of the later films absolutely but do you know actually how they film the stanley cameos now do they sit him in a green screen room and they essentially paste film him in? five at a time in his home and- <laughs> yeah <laughs> Well, the man's 93 years yeah, old yeah. and still going strong. I say going strong, he was hospitalised this week. <laughs> um, so I hope by the time that this episode goes out that Stanley is going strong because he is a mainstay. Stanley, RIP. <laughs> yeah, this, could, this episode could be oh, dedicated no. to the memory of Stanley. Oh, if, God. If it comes out at the wrong time. <laughs> um, <laughs> But no, they essentially film them like uh, five cameos at a time. And then they work them into the films. Wonderful. Yeah, it's real thought. <laughs> and, and we talk about them not it. being like a TV show. I know. <laughs> what were we actually talking about? Well, we were talking about its context in terms of its kind of origins. And also, yeah, it's one of the main problems of the film. It's like, because it sits in this weird nether space between not being a sequel mm-hmm. to Hulk and not being its own thing either because it's part of the MCU yeah. retroactively. It doesn't know what it wants to be, or what you know. It doesn't, yeah, it's having a doesn't real have, identity. Crisis. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't know what its purpose is. Yeah. Other than to not do what Hulk did. Yes. That's basically its sort of remit. Not do what Hulk did. Mm-hmm. That sounds like Hulk saying that. Not do what Hulk <laughs> did. Well, for me personally, I've got to lay this out there. For many, Hulk is a film that they refer to as being a guilty pleasure. But for me, Hulk is a great film with some serious flaws, but a film that takes risks. And I really, really like that film and respond to it because not only is it taking risks in terms of its aesthetic, in terms of the way that it's edited and put together, that comic book style, it makes the comic book style very much a part of the viewing experience of the film. But also narratively, I think it takes risks. The problem is it probably takes too many and takes Hulk away from this source material. But in its own contained universe, I like the ideas of what they do on a character level, on a story development level. I think there's a lot going on in that film. And obviously, because it's an Ang Lee film and he makes these character dramas, it's very character heavy. 
And I actually think that the studio took the wrong lessons away from Hulk. In approaching The Incredible Hulk, they decided our audiences clearly want to see more action. They want to see less character development. And so they kind of part it right back to the bare essentials. And now we are left with a film with barely any character development or story development whatsoever. <laughs> I just have this vision of those two film nerds from the League of Gentlemen going, yeah, I don't like the Hulk. <laughs> Too much acting. <laughs> Too much acting, yeah. Too much development. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't like how the character changes from the beginning to the end. Yeah, no. I just want him to be as he is. Yeah. <laughs> Learning is overrated anyway. Yeah, yeah. But The Incredible Hulk, I called it a piece of shit earlier, and that, that was just a joke, really, to get into this, because I don't think it's ever a offensively bad film. There are bad moments, but I don't think it's a bad film. I don't think it's a good film, but it occupies that space in between, and it almost feels like yeah, it's, it's, it's happy to do so. Yeah, it's nicely mediocre. Yeah, exactly. And in that way, it feels like a film that is made by committee. There isn't a creative decision made that doesn't feel like it's passed through the digestive systems of about 20 different studios heads yeah and everybody's got their opinions and those have been diluted into the slab of mediocrity that is the incredible hulk yeah it is a real shame though because i feel like it starts really well and it's one of those films that starts well and then slowly the wheels fall off and yeah you end up with a just a flaming carcass at the end of it well it's strange that actually the part of the film that feels most like a sequel to hulk is where it's at its strongest yeah and then as they retrofit it as it goes on into being a marvel cinematic universe film that's where the issues start to arise yeah slowly but surely it loses its identity as well and anything that makes it different the whole section of the film where it's set in the favela works really well actually and um, it doesn't feel like your typical superhero film it feels a bit more sort of real and grounded yeah and the character living in this situation and the whole part of it is really nice. And then, yeah, as soon as all the other characters are introduced, really, yeah, it sort of I, starts to fall apart. I think the moment that they actually get back into mainland America, and I can't remember actually where it's set. Well, it's kind of Virginia. Yeah. Culver University, isn't it? Sort of thing. The moment that they start to get there, I, I even think on a visual level, it kind of loses its flair in a yeah, way. Yeah, and it starts to feel really small. It really does, doesn't it? Yeah, basically from the second... Yeah, there's sort of three major action sequences in the film and, and mm -hmm. from the middle of the one onwards, which is the one in the Culver City University, which is the daylight one. From there on, it starts to feel very, very small and very sort of, yeah, TV movie-esque. It kind of reminded me in a weird way of um, Battle for Planet of the Apes, where they have like 20 people to do the battle on a green somewhere. Uh, <laughs> yes, a, it does. It does have that field. feel. Yeah, it has that kind of feel to it. And it's like you've got your main baddie on foot just running across this empty field and it just feels very kind of hmm. and and they really go out of their way to overlight everything as well in visual terms because even during that entire action sequence we have a storm rising over the hulk as it comes over but anytime it cuts to anybody else everybody's in blazing yeah. sunlight yeah a really badly composited storm because yeah, yeah. it's obvious that the lighting is not matching but even in the scene following that where Ty Burrell, the guy from Modern Family, is yeah. talking to General Thunderbolt Ross on his porch. It's lit like it's blazing sunlight, but there's pouring rain as well. And there are decisions like that that have been made that do make it feel like a TV movie where they are pulling back on the idea of having dynamic lighting. Where if, When we go back to that opening, that whole Brazil part, we have some really great moments there. I especially like the scene where 
Bruce Banner starts to turn into the Hulk and we get that classic shot where we have the bar across the eyes, the light bar across the eyes and he opens them in yeah. the green and stuff. Where it most feels like a universal monster movie. You know, yeah, like. and it's also the bit, as always with monster films, of which you can kind of class the Hulk in it, the monster's always the most effective when you can't see it. Yes. The sequence in the bottling factory is the most effective because you physically can't see the Hulk mm-hmm. for the most part. Uh, and it's more about what you imagine him to look like. And they always make this mistake. And I suppose they kind of get round it when they do him again in the Avengers because they treat the Hulk in a completely different context Yeah, in those kind of films. But in this one where they're trying to sort of make him look scary, it works, but then it sort of falls apart when you see him more. And in fact, the only other time that it works is when they're in the cave. I agree, yeah. I actually think that is probably the strongest Hulk scene um, where he isn't smashing something yeah. in the film. Uh, and that's it, only because it's modelled on a comic book scene as well. Yeah. It's from Hulk Grey. I, I there's actually a feature on the Blu-ray where you can watch like a comparison of where they've taken it from because mm-hmm. they show you like the moving comic book of Hulk Grey and then showing how they sort of reinterpreted that for that scene. And that's probably why it looks so good because it's, it's visual references sort of already been established. But that makes sense. Yeah. But I also think that it's the only part in the film where we do get a sense that the Hulk himself is a character. Yeah, yeah. And I really need to get into the writing of this film to talk about the issues that I have with it. And it's mainly in regards to pretty much all of the characters but Emil Blonsky. (laughs) No one has an arc. No. There is no development. Nobody uh, changes throughout the entirety of the film. And even in regards to Bruce Banner, his change at the end of the film where we are led to believe that perhaps he is able to control the Hulk now, even that's left purposefully ambiguous. And it's never really been the end game or the conflict in the film with him and the Hulk. In fact, there is very little conflict between Bruce Banner and the Hulk himself. Like, it's more so about, I need to get rid of the Hulk that's inside me, not because it hurts people that I love or anything like that, although they do try to make that a point. Visually, it's very early on in that uh, montage, Mm. but that's never really the point of it. It's more so, I need to get rid of it because people are trying to pursue me and I can't live my normal life with this monster in me because these people will want to dissect me and stuff like that. Yeah, That's more so the drive for that film. And that doesn't really change. At the end of the film, we're still left with him in the exact same position as he is at the beginning. Which is probably why it was probably so easy to... uh reboot him again with the Avengers because yeah. the character on that level has basically not much changed. There's not really any characters in the film. I'd, I'd probably say the character with the most development is probably Ross. I think Blomsky has the strongest arc in terms of he is an aging... Yeah, um, but it's dealt with really cat-handedly. It's a terrible end kind of thing. <laughs> it, the way it's executed in the end, it's not very good. But on a writing level, in yeah. a story level, he is... The only character who, at the end of the film, is changed from who he is at yeah. the beginning of the film. Because, yeah, I was thinking about that before and I, when I was watching it through again now, knowing a couple of things going in as well in terms of where they wanted it to go, I feel the film really falls apart, like completely falls apart as soon as they meet Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah, and it's such the, a shame because he's a great actor as yeah, well. Yeah, but the film completely falls apart at it that does. point because there's lots of bits where... It's that classic screenwriting problem of things getting set up and resolved in the same scene. Yeah. Everything moves way too fast at that point from when they're discussing, when they're doing the the tests to try and cure Bruce Banner to the point where Blonsky wants to make himself the same. All that stuff happens basically within the same scene or if there is, I think there's another scene in between, but that's about it. And it's so quick and it really starts to lose its sort of credibility then in terms of what the characters are thinking and their motivations. It just starts to 
really fall apart. And, and then that's partly because, obviously, where they're at in the film, wanting to make the film shorter, yeah. and also for what they wanted to do with Tim Blake Nelson's character in the future as well. And I feel that all those things start to impact on themselves in a way, it's quite a good hint at the the sort of problem of doing films like this in the in, in, the, the, cinematic in the cinematic universe. universe. It's kind of one of the sort of first inklings of the problems they would face. Yeah, this this idea that you will have these films that struggle to find their identity when trying to assimilate into this yeah, large yeah. long form way of storytelling. Yeah, and then for me, the because of all this other goofy stuff that's happened, that like the less said about the end action sequence, the better, because. It's sort of completely undone by the haphazard setup, really, because yeah. the abomination is a literal abomination because he's like the goofiest villain. Yeah, I mean, and not in a good way. Either. No, it, it's really not. But it's kind of naff. Just before we get into the ending, uh, talking about that lack of motivation and character development. And that really leads us into Ed Norton himself and why he didn't actually reprise his role as Bruce Banner in The Avengers. Uh, because I do think that it was mooted at one point. The reason was that Ed Norton was chased for this role of Bruce Banner. And the stipulation that he would sign on was that he would get to rewrite the script. And he did. He did it himself. He did a page one rewrite yeah. about two months out from shooting. And it meant that he couldn't change much structurally about the film, but he could add some character development and dialogue. And that was essentially what his rewrite did. And they shot it and they shot all of that footage. And then when it actually came to the edit, they cut everything out that he had added to the <laughs> film. So you are left with a film that doesn't have any of the motivation. And, and he recognized that from the outset. Yeah. They essentially cut it back to being the film it was before he signed on. Yeah. And it, it hurts because when we do get to that final fight between him and Abomination, there are no stakes, really. This is an environment um, in the Bronx, I think, somewhere that we are not familiar with. It hasn't been established in the rest of the film. There are no characters here that we care about. Mm. We don't care about Bruce Banner or the Hulk. Abomination is far removed from Tim Roth. Yeah. It's his own separate entity. Yeah. And it essentially just becomes the equivalent of watching a friend play a video game as you're looking over their shoulder. And Louis French name, Leterrier, <laughs> he actually said that... Leterrier. Yeah, Leterrier. He actually said that they took the inspiration for that whole sequence from a Hulk-related video game. And I think that shows. Yeah, you're talking about how the Abomination feels far removed from Tim Roth. So the same goes for the Hulk from Edward Norton, primarily because he doesn't even look like Edward no. Norton. He sort of the reasons why you were listening to the commentary track, weren't you? Yeah, I actually thought watching the film that it was something that had happened in the designing phase, but I thought actually, oh, perhaps it's a CGI that maybe they've emphasized some part of his face too much or his body, uh, obviously, because the Hulk is supposed to be an overemphasized version of whatever person's playing Bruce Banner. Mm. But any sense of Ed Norton is lost in the actual Hulk itself. The eyes are changed. There's no humanity there. Yeah. And it becomes just a piece of CGI wizardry for us to marvel at and not a character in and of itself because of that look that they've gone for. Yeah. And I put it down to everybody else but the director. And when I was listening to the commentary, he actually acknowledged that like it was a positive point. Oh, we purposefully made the Hulk look nothing like Ed Norton, is what he said, because they wanted it to look like it does in the comic books and they wanted it to look like a monster. And he's clearly a fan of Universal's classic monster movies because mm. he's constantly referencing them both in the film and in the commentary. But one thing that he omits in this is that there's a human element to the monsters in those films. They do feel like they are being played by people. 
and there's a tragedy to these characters and their humanity is very much part of that. Yeah. And because the Hulk has no humanity... It's redundant. Yeah. And I feel like um, the, the previous film kind of made that mistake to a lesser extent. But I feel like yeah. they only really got it right in that aspect when they did the Mark Ruffalo version when you yeah. can clearly see that the Hulk there looks like Mark Ruffalo. Absolutely. And you can put two and two together, which worked for the film because obviously for large sections of the Avengers, he is the Hulk. Yes. So you couldn't just lose the actor. Whereas, yeah, in these earlier films when the Hulk doesn't appear as much, mm-hmm. they could kind of get away with it just, but you still feel that real disconnect between yeah. Bruce Banner and the Hulk. It doesn't feel like they're one character. You know what the real issue is with the Hulk in this film? There's not enough Hulk cock. Nope. There really isn't. Nope. For a man that stretches as much as he does, yeah. we want to see that swinging dick. <laughs> I paid money. I paid money to see this film. I ought to, to see, see a swinging, swinging dick. Swinging green cock. Yeah, that's something that the Hulk, Ang Lee's Hulk film had. Yeah. He had a swinging dick in that film. Yeah. That's why that's better for me. <laughs> Is it? That, yeah. That's why you like it more. And for anybody that's seen that famous, that infamous gif of, um, <laughs> of Hulk and, um, oh, I forgot my name, Black Widow, <laughs> they know that the Avengers Hulk fucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should say that. Yeah. Hulk (laughs) Hulk smash, you're back out. (laughs) I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Sorry, I've killed the conversation dead. Yeah, you've killed... Bye. So uh, thanks for listening to Best (laughs) Forgotten Movies. The thing is, I'm getting like ahead of myself because The Incredible Hulk is a film that I can pick apart in the way that I am doing. And the more and more I think about it, it makes me a little bit angry in terms of its failures. But it is a very watchable film. I mean, I'd say the the last half an hour is not great to watch. No. But leading up to it, it's all right. It's not offensively bad. No. And I think that's again, it's another reason why it's been forgotten. because It's not offensively bad. It's not so bad. It's good. It's just there. I have actually um, wrote in my notes that you are absolutely right. It is one of those middle-of-the-road films that it's almost worse to be this kind of dull. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to be bad, just be terrible. Yeah. I think as well, I, I kind of noted it as well, especially now we're kind of so well acquainted with Mark Ruffalo's version of the Hulk. I kind of have a feeling, I feel like, that Edward Norton was slightly miscast. Yeah as Bruce Banner, he doesn't really feel right in the film. Yeah. doesn't feel right. And also, as well, like, I feel like... Because I quite like Liv Tyler as Betty, but I don't feel like they have any chemistry together. But there's nothing going on on a writing level anyway between no, those characters. No, they're not written. And she's kind of like, as my wife described her, a wet weekend. Yeah. And this film's very wet. There's a lot of rain. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's moist. No, she looks right, but at the same time, yeah, there's the way that she's written. I mean, yeah, the whole film is like that. I mean, you've got actors like... I mean, like I think William Hurt's probably the only one that's sort of served okay by the film. Yeah. But like Tim Roth, you've got fucking Tim Roth. And the, some of the things he's got to do and, and say and the kind of character that he is, paper thin as it is, it's mm-hmm. just like, oh my God, wasn't Ray Stevenson originally interested in playing <laughs> that part? And it kind of felt like a better fit than yeah, Tim Roth because if you're going to get Tim Roth, get him to do something dramatic. Jesus yeah. Christ. It's like, it felt such an ill fit for Tim Roth as well because yeah. it's like, why is he in this film? Like, I, I felt like he was sold a different film. Yeah, than what it was. I think a few people involved in this film yeah. sold a different film than what eventually was released. And it does say a lot that the one character that is served well by the film or isn't really embarrassed by it, which is William Hurt, is the one that element that they've continued on. Yeah, they've kept, this film. Yeah. yeah, speaking of Emil Blomsky for a second as a character, um, I, like I say, I actually like that he has an arc, a way into this film, a motivation for doing the things that he does. 
but the subplot surrounding his character <laughs> actually undoes the entire story of the film and the entire reason why Thunderbolt Ross is pursuing Bruce Banner. Because Bruce Banner's being pursued because Ross wants what's in his body so that he can dissect him and use whatever the Hulk is as a military weapon. He wants yeah. to make super soldiers out of it. And yet, with Emil Blomsky, they demonstrate that they can already do that. They yeah. literally invent, <laughs> uh, like, inject him with some super soldier serum, and it works fucking gangbusters. Yeah. All of the issues that arise from that transition have nothing to do with the science or the tech behind it, but because simply they chose the wrong person to do it to. It's all because of Blomsky as a character that it fails. Yeah. I mean, they could have easily fixed that as well because you could still have all that. And I feel like they're trying to do that is the fact that he's so blinded by yeah. his anger towards Bruce Banner that he kind of forgets that that's not really the reason why he's, he wants to capture the Hulk. Yeah, yeah. But they don't really do anything Maybe. with it. And, and in a way... pages probably... Yeah, and it's like it feels that. like that's kind of what they're going for, but they never explicitly do anything with it. And yeah, it kind of makes it sort of a big plot hole mm -hmm. because yeah, they can already do this. <laughs> Within the MCU itself, we can look at what they've already done with Captain America and all of what's happened there in the past so many years ago, mm. even more so now as these films have developed. There's so much that's happened before this film has taken place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that it kind of makes this whole thing feel a bit weird and like say small and quaint, but also a bit backwards as well. Yeah, yeah. It is just strange that they have the end game for why they're chasing Bruce Banner. They've already achieved it. And they flaunt it so readily in front of the audience. They don't mm. even attempt to hide it. There are no side effects from this that Blomsky needs to... Um... Like it doesn't work quite like, yeah, really exactly. well or anything. Nope, it works fine. Yeah, the only reason that Blomsky ends up actually injured in such a horrifying way is because for some unknown reason, he decides to just approach the Hulk and say, is that all you've got so that he can be kicked in the head? Yeah. It doesn't even happen in battle or anything like that. It's not even that he's not a match to the Hulk in that form. It's no. just that he decides at one point that he's going to be too cocky for his own good. Yeah. And I think that's happened again in moving this film from being a Hulk sequel into the MCU. The actual story's been lost somewhere along the way in trying to set up all these elements. Yeah. Because in a way, this is supposed to be a setup for Captain America. Yeah. And I kind of feel as well as like, oh, we can't change these characters too much because we need to use them again in the next one. Exactly. And it's like, that's highlighting another issue that the MCU has faced is that, yeah, there is sometimes problems with character development and changes. I feel like they've gotten over that a lot though recently, especially with films like Thor Ragnarok. They've yeah. done quite big changes and things. But yeah, I feel like initially they were kind of afraid of changing the characters too much. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's possible to make a good Hulk solo film? It is, but like I was saying to you before, and we were discussing this before, where it's like if you wanted to make a really good, interesting Hulk film, you'd have to do something really out there. And at this point, there was no fucking way they were going to be able to do anything like that. Yeah. Because in a way, yeah, I feel like there's, there's only so many things you can do with the Hulk in this kind of setup. Because even though it's a, it's a sequel-esque, it's a reboot, it still feels a bit like, oh, I've seen all this before yeah. in the other one. And I remember even feeling like that at the time. And it's like, yeah, it's a bit like, not quite the same feeling, but it was a bit like when we saw uh, The Amazing Spider-Man after only just seeing yeah, Sam, Sam Raimi's, Raimi's Spider-Man. Uh, it was had a similar feeling to that where it kind of, it felt a little bit redundant. 
Yes, yeah. and it's certainly been made further redundant yeah, by yeah. Spider-Man Homecoming. Because at the time when it came out, I didn't even realise it was even part of the MCU because they had no marketing to back that up at the time and it wasn't a thing then. Whereas now it's very much a thing. But yeah, back then it was like, oh, they're doing another Hulk film. Is that a sequel? It's like, I think that was also yeah, partly why people got confused with it as well because it's like if the filmmakers are confused as to what it is, the audience is going to be confused as to what it is as well. Yeah, like, the only thing that actually sets it apart from being a sequel is that opening credits that were actually designed by the guy who did seven and the marvel logo and i assume red dragon and everything like that but that opening it's a really great opening credits as well i really like it but that yeah. wasn't actually scripted and they filmed that on the fly during production they just kind of got the odd shot for it here and there knowing that at some point there were going to be flashbacks and in the end they used it in an opening credit sequence mm. and kind of bolstered it out with some reshot material and I think that part actually works, but you can tell it is kind of tacked on. Yeah. But I love that about this film, and that's the thing that sets it apart from the other films in the MCU, is that the origin side of things, like it trusts that the audience knows. It does it we- DC style, baby. <laughs> <laughs> but I like I like that it trusts that the audience knows the story. Let's yeah. cut to where we want our story to begin. It's everything that follows those yeah. opening credits. <laughs> whereas, whereas DC, it trusts that the audience knows everything about the character, so yeah. we don't have to mention anything about them at all. But I only trust it's that the other because way. <laughs> most people who have seen this film had seen Hulk a few years previously. Yeah, yeah. And I think as well with the Hulk as well, it's not the most complicated of origin stories. It's fairly basic mm-hmm. in terms of how it happens. It's more about what happens afterwards that's yeah. the interesting part, which is kind of, yeah, why it is kind of good that they did that. And also, I yeah. think that's also why people... It's probably one of the main flaws of the original Hulk film is that it probably spends a bit too much time procrastinating or people felt that way anyway, yeah. which is why they wanted to get to the sort of I business can see, of, I can see that. I can definitely see that with that film and there is a long time spent dealing with what the Hulk means on a character level but I actually appreciate that it does deal with that whole side of things like the Hulk himself actually is a physical manifestation of the main character's post-traumatic stress Mm. disorder I guess that he has regarding some traumatic event that he's repressed from earlier on in his life. Yeah but who cares Hulk smash! (laughs) But I I like that the Hulk represents something in Bruce Banner's life and also that's why he's quite childlike because the thing happened in his past when he was a kid and he's essentially the angry child in him that never got to be angry about this terrible thing that happened to him Mm. I love that that's essentially what that film is about approaching this film I don't know what the Hulk represents no it doesn't doesn't go into any of that yeah and I don't actually even think he is angry the Hulk is sad in this film but in a way that I don't feel sorry for him, I feel like he's the way that I look at like a 14-year-old emo guy that's <laughs> listening to My Chemical Romance. Uh, I think it's the fringe. <laughs> he's, it should he, be he brooding. Feels, yeah, he feels it whiny. Be, yeah, it should be brooding to the music that uh, Jonah Hill listens to when he's in the, when he's having the bad trip in 22 <laughs> Jump Street. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is no character to the Hulk. And I guess that brings me to ask as well, what is it that Joss Whedon did differently? What is it that made that work? It's a different thing because he's one of an ensemble, so you don't get loads of screen time with him. But yeah, I think he just boils the character down to its essence and then has fun with it, really. Yeah. Whereas I feel like they try to have fun with it here, but it's it's misguided. But then they don't really boil down bruce banner to his essence either it's very kind of yeah i don't feel like i'm watching bruce banner that that's also the i think that's also why i feel it's miscast i don't feel like i'm watching bruce banner as a character i just feel like i'm watching edward norton yes going around brazil yeah from another film (laughs) 
I just don't feel like Edward Norton and the Hulk are a natural fit with each other. I actually think the only reason that he has been cast is because of Fight Club. Yeah. And I yeah, think yeah. when you look at that film, you know what? Ed Norton's already done the Incredible Hulk much better. And that was with Fight Club. The yeah, whole idea of yeah. having a split personality and this other character represents a version of himself that he almost wishes he was and could attain. Yeah. Plus, I just don't feel like he's particularly great at being a leading man like yeah. in this kind of film. Mm-hmm. Like, he's fine in a, if you were doing, say, a political thriller or something like that. Yeah. It's like, it was weird because when I was watching him in his little white vest and stuff, it just felt a little bit too weedy and like he had some man boobs and it didn't <laughs> feel like he, he had like a dad bod. But yeah, I just, I think it's just the whole part of it, like whether or not they were written well, everyone else felt well cast in the roles that they were in. Yeah. Whereas he just didn't feel right. And it wasn't as if he was bad because he wasn't doing anything bad, but it just didn't feel right for that particular actor to be in that particular film. No, I agree. Yeah. Role. It felt like they were trying to shove it in. And that's it. I only think he was cast because someone in the studio somewhere said Ed Norton did well with Fight Club. Let's yeah. cast him. I'm, I'm pretty but sure I saw... His character has none of the same yeah. kind of intensity as his character Jack does in yeah. Fight Club. Because I'm pretty sure I saw an IMDb thing. It might be one of these bullshit IMDb ones, but it's like that Mark Ruffalo was one person that they did actually see oh, really? for this film and that Lula Terrier really liked Mark Ruffalo, but Marvel really wanted Ed Norton because obviously he was more of a name at the time because Mark yeah. Ruffalo was very yeah. much sort of low-key. And they had already gone down the semi-unknown route with Eric Banner. Yeah. Hulk. And it wasn't really until sort of when they started doing Captain America and Thor, really, where they started to use people that maybe weren't quite as well-known, especially with Thor. Yeah. Because Chris Evans was kind of well Yeah, because he, he was the best thing about the Fantastic Four films. Yeah, that nobody yeah. And, he, and even Robert Downey Jr., even though he wasn't particularly massive at the time, mm-hmm. he was still sort of fairly well known, mainly for being a fuck up. But yes, you yeah. know, he was he was kind of known to yeah, people. He was a household name in the way that everybody knew Robert Downey Jr. Yeah, he was kind of very much like Johnny Depp in that respect, yeah. where he was kind of before Pirates. Everyone knew about Johnny Depp, but he wasn't a big box office draw. And now, and and the, everybody the loves kind of, a comeback. Yeah, and, it's the and same they kind of framed thing. it like that. Whereas, yeah, it just yeah, it did feel like a. Like a studio note that really shouldn't have yeah, happened. And I'm glad that it's something that has been rectified. Yeah. Because yeah. Mark Ruffalo does feel now like he is the Hulk. Yeah. And I think that's something that Josh Whedon does right in terms of approaching the character on a character level is that he finds that middle ground in that he knows that the Hulk has to work on his own, but he also still has to feel like an extension of Bruce Banner in some way. And the Hulk himself has his own character arc, as does Bruce Banner. They have their own almost like separate character arcs. At at the beginning, or I'd say the midpoint of the Avengers, the Hulk is dealt with as being a monster in a monster movie. He Mm. also frames him like one of the classic universal monsters in darkness. We only get to see his eyes. We get to see the Hulk in Beast at times and stuff like that. And then later on, as he becomes the hero, we get to see him in a more heroic light, I guess. And that's his character development. He goes from being villain to hero. And Bruce Banner goes from being somebody who is afraid of the Hulk to somebody who is has a kinship with him, knows that here's yeah, how I can le- control him. Has learned to embrace him. Exactly. Yeah. And so he, he manages to deal with them both as separate characters with their own arcs that are also interlinked. Yeah. There's none of that cleverness going on with the Incredible Hulk. No, no. And I'd say, yeah, it, within the Avengers film, it's probably one of the strongest aspects of the film. Because I say, for me, like the reason that I, I don't love that film as much is I feel like it's still one of these films that gets 
too bogged down with its place within the TV show like nature of the MCU at that point where it was very much and it's still a little bit like I said with the main ensemble films they still get a little bit too bogged down with MacGuffins and mm-hmm. bollocks and lights in the sky, you know, oh, that yeah. kind of shit. And it, yeah, it feels like at the moment, it feels like the ones that are really sort of making the mark are the standalone ones yeah. that don't have that kind of baggage. Um, whereas, yeah, I feel like the ensemble films, it's never really had chance to really sort of become its own thing because it's always bogged down with trying to join all these things up together. Yeah, I think the Avengers Age of Ultron really suffered from that, actually. Yeah. It and almost came too soon after the Avengers, I yeah. almost feel like. And like I say, it's really difficult to watch the Avengers, especially the, the opening of the Avengers, cold. Yeah. Because you, you just can't. Yes, it, it is. I actually think that the first 20 minutes of the Avengers don't actually work. Yeah, it's you, only once they get on the helicarrier that all yeah. of the characters start to interact on that helicarrier that it finds its footing. Yeah, it's one of those films that basically requires you to watch Thor yes. and Iron Man 2 before mm-hmm. you can yeah. really get into it. Which is not always good because it feels no, no, like no, it's not. It, it kind of ages the film badly yeah. in places. It kind of feels fine at the end, but yeah, it ages the film badly. But yeah, going back to this one, yeah, it's, I can't say it's aged badly because it's kind of all right for what it is. It's simple in that way. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of too simple. Like I, I couldn't really describe the plot to you. Yeah. Like there is basically no story because no one has a change. No, no, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> stuff happens. Yeah. Really. It is a film of stuff happening, but it's not, like you say, there's nothing offensive really about the way in which the film has been made. Yeah. And Louis Leterrier is going to go on to great things as well from this film. As we know, yeah, uh, yeah. we get to see such sights as Mark Strong taking a face full of horse cock in The Brothers Grimsby. Release the Kraken! <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Now you see me, now yeah. you don't. He's really gone on to great yeah. things. Did I say horse cock? Did, did you I, say horse? You, I, you, you, I hope you I do, said elephant cock. You do say horse cock quite I a lot I say anyway. horse cock a lot. I, yeah. It's just always on my mind. Yeah. You were always but, on my but mind. But it, it is indicative of the times that, that these films were made. And I feel like they've only really just gotten out of this as well. Yeah. That they hire the guy from the Transporter movies to make your Incredible Hulk film. Yeah. Especially yeah, coming from Ang Lee to fucking Louis Leterrier. They needed a middle ground. Yeah. They needed to find that middle ground between <laughs> those two directors. Yeah. Because as much as I do like Hulk, I totally understand why any fan of The Incredible Hulk or any fan of comic books did not like that film. No. I completely get it. It's yeah. just, it spoke to me on a certain level, but I get why it didn't speak to so many people. But that doesn't mean that in your next film, you have to like omit all of the character development and story development. Yeah, yeah they, they went, they went overboard. And and smash. I think that's also because they originally went about it as a, as a sequel. But at the same time, they would have still had to have developed the characters further when they yep. didn't. So yeah. yeah, it does neither. It's, it does, as we say often on this show, falls between two stools <laughs> into a pile of poo. I mean, that that has a double meaning, really. Two stools are yeah. shit. It doesn't fall onto another shit. It's already shit. Yeah. And becomes a third <laughs> shit in the middle of two shits. I don't know what that actually means. No, no, no. That, that is a metaphor. It's the middle much, shit. Much like this film, it's a metaphor that completely lost its shape. <laughs> Before we get to the questions, I want to ask, where do you think this film falls in terms of the money that it's made? Do you think it made more than Hulk or less? I'm going to say the same. Oh, you are very close. (laughs) It is actually... I'm going to say it had no change. It made more, (laughs) but marginally so. Yeah, and probably adjusted for inflation, probably less. Yeah, so... And I guess that's a response to that. They went too far in the other direction rather than seeking that middle ground between the two. And so audiences just responded to it just as negatively, but the other side of the spectrum. 
and it made $263 million worldwide. Hulk previously made $245 million worldwide, but it was made for $20 million less. Yeah. So mm, yeah. it kind of it, balances out. Yeah. It, it is the least successful MCU film though, isn't it? Yes, it yeah. is. I'm pretty sure it is. It remains that By way. quite yeah. a long way yeah. as well, because I think even... Like the likes, yeah. yeah, I think even the likes. Well, I'm ended quite well. I think. I think it was three hundred and something, wasn't it? Three hundred and fifty or four hundred. Yeah. But no, I think it's only the initial MCU films that were making less than four hundred. Yeah. Like the original Captain America and and Thor and stuff. But I feel like ever since the Avengers, they've not really dipped below four fifty to five hundred. Mm-hmm. And I feel like yeah, this is kind of it is the black sheep of the MCU. It definitely is. I mean, how... I feel like there's actually worse films in there than Yes, I'd than agree. Hulk. I'd think there are straight out bad films in the MCU. I can yeah. think of a couple. Iron Man two really doesn't work. Yeah. Thor two. Yeah, Thor the Dark World. And then yeah, there's some really like bland ones in there as well. I think this just falls in line with the bland films in yeah. the MCU. Yeah, it's 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 up there with your uh, Ant Man's I do cut it some slack because it came at a time when the MCU was still finding their feet and it I guess it wasn't part of their five-year plan. It only became to be retrofitted into their five-year yeah, plan. Yeah, and you, you can tell that as well because isn't it distributed by a different studio? Paramount, I'm pretty sure. Well, it's, this one's Universal. Oh, Universal. the other sorry. one's a Paramount. Yeah, th- there's some iffiness in regards to who owns the rights to the Hulk. It's, yeah. Uh, Marvel owns the rights to the character to be used in a film, but they're in a position where they can't make a solo film because yeah, Universal yeah. owns the rights to... The solo film prophecy, which is very strange. I don't know why they don't do a Sony Pictures deal, though. Apparently, like, they've been working on it for years and yeah. just not being able to It's find. weird, though, because they've already done it, and I don't understand why. Yeah, yeah it's not as if it hasn't happened ever. Mm-hmm. But you can tell, though, because of the producers involved. Like, you've got your usual suspects, like yeah. your Avi Arad, who's basically Dino De Laurentiis for the 21st century. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he knows his ass from his elbow no. when it comes to... <laughs> he never has a clue. <laughs> But yeah, it's basically Dino De Laurentiis reborn. He actually reminds me. He's he's not just Dino De Laurentiis. He reminds me of the guy who made Wild Wild West. Oh yeah, John Peters. John Peters. I feel like he's more of a John Peters. Like he has yeah, this idea yeah. of it's got to have a giant mechanical spider. Yeah. Like he's the guy that comes in. No, this film has to have insert terrible thing. Yeah. When you look at the, the list of MCU films, it's kind of an anomaly because very rarely that you get any other producers apart from yeah. Kevin Feige and that's it usually and yeah it's you can tell that it's kind of a, a co-production of something's been yeah a, a deal has on been somewhere made. yeah yeah so Andy are you any closer to understanding why the Incredible Hulk has been forgotten yeah it's just entirely redundant in one the reasons why it was made two the result and three the fact that it's basically been retconned ever since by better versions of the character and is, you know, bar obviously them rebooting the main character and utilizing one actor from the film in a kind of slightly different context anyway, because it was yeah. so long ago since they he was in it last. It's literally the only film that's the actual cinematic universe as it stands as just sort of shunned aside. Mm-hmm. It kind of just pretend it doesn't exist. I agree. I think so, they've taken the best elements from it, really, and, yeah. and and assimilated them into the MCU in a much more natural way. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's particularly bad. I keep saying that, but there are elements in it, like Tim Blake Nelson's character. I'm glad that that is a subplot that's never going to be revisited because I don't think that character worked, even though I love the actor. Yeah, he felt like he belonged in the Amazing Spider-Man yes. films. Yes, he does. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely has that feel to it. There, there's some weird tonal shifts in this film. Like, yeah, he's a big tonal shift. And also there's that weird taxi ride. 
oh, in the middle how crazy of New York is that, that just yeah. fucking comes out of nowhere. I think it's because they realized at that point that Betty was such a wet weekend yeah, that they yeah. just had to give her a moment of, oh, the audiences are getting fed up of her. Let's just have her scream something and try and be endearing in some way. But yeah, it was just a really weird, like we hadn't seen that kind of humor in the film. No, not before, at all. And it was just yeah. like, oh. Yeah, it felt very Luke Besson. Yeah, and when we think of like Tim Blake Nelson's character, think about this: the deleted opening of the film is actually Bruce Banner with a gun in his mouth in a very fight. Yeah, yeah, I watched that before. I, I don't, I didn't understand that opening at all. Yeah. It was like, what? <laughs> like, it's... yeah, I'm glad they didn't use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they actually reference it in the Avengers. I'm pretty sure Mark Ruffalo's version of the character actually says he put a bullet in his head and the Hulk spat it out. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's that's dark. Yeah. But yeah, there are some tonal shifts, real, real yeah. whip, um, whips back and forth. Yeah. I whip my shifts back and forth. And I'm not, I'm not sure whether this is just because I know the place as well. I feel like there's, there's other things that, but especially like the end scene bothers me for lots of different reasons that I didn't even realize that even bothered me the first time around. Is it's so fucking obvious that the end fight in the streets of New York is it's fucking Toronto. <laughs> it's fucking Toronto. It doesn't feel to like the New point York, yeah. where. Right, there's a record shop in Toronto yeah. called Sam's Record Store, and it's very distinctive. It's got basically uh, two neon records that sort of spin mm-hmm. around on, and it's massive. You can't miss it. It's one of the most famous landmarks in Toronto. It's one of the most famous record stores in the world, yeah. and it's in every fucking shot of the fight scene. Literally, it keeps cutting back to it, and it's like, if you want to make people know that it's not Toronto, you need to don't shoot out. Sam's yeah. Record Store. And it's things like that. It's just like, that's fucking lazy. Lazy, yeah. And it's like, I get the same feeling from when they shot those New York street scenes uh, for Captain America, the first Avenger, that it kind of felt a bit lazy because it's like, it's not New York. It's fucking Manchester. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Liverpool. Yeah, it's just, it felt like at this point in the MCU, you still had that kind of slight laziness about Cotton it. corners a little bit. Yeah. And, I, and they I, were known for that at the time. Yeah, they were known for and, being and, very frugal. And yeah, you just get that feeling where everything's very non-committal in this film yeah. as well. So yeah, like it's just, the film's just there. It was made. Yeah. End. <laughs> and my final question, is The Incredible Hulk one of the best of the forgotten movies or should it simply remain best forgotten? I guess I'll come in with this one with my opinion really quickly is that I'm going to side that it's probably best forgotten. Mm-hmm. and I don't think it's a particularly bad film. It's very watchable, but its type of blandness is... It's not offensively bad, but it does still feel like a waste of an hour and a half because there are better films that do this type of action and do this type of character thing. You know, just watch The Avengers. Just yeah. watch The Avengers, and when it comes out, watch Thor Ragnarok. There's far more going on on a character level. It gives you more... It gives you actually what you want to see from a Hulk film. It's just a part of a different universe. And yeah, for what The Incredible Hulk sets out to do and for what it does, there are just better films out there to watch. Mm. And and that is why I think that sometimes it's just worse to be bland. Yeah, I can't disagree with you either. Like, it feels really odd to put it in the best forgotten category because it's not bad, but there's not really one element in the film that I can champion and go, yeah, that's like the diamond in the rough. Yes, like, yeah. I mean, the most I can possibly say is, yeah, William Hurt's quite good as, as Ross, but... It's not amazing either. Yeah. Well, he's not used to the point where it could be amazing. We've mm-hmm. discussed the problems with that character in terms of all the plot holes. So, yeah, there's nothing I can champion. Say, for example, unlike last week, where, like, yeah, we really liked all the Necromonger stuff. Yeah, yeah. Whereas this week, I just... I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is... It's, it's just that it kind is, of a film. It's the, I like the, uh, the favelas. 
that's, that's it, about it. That should be its title. It's the incredible. Yeah, but it's like I like the favelas, but if I'm gonna watch something like that, I'll watch um, City of God or something. You need to, you know what? Don't watch The Incredible Hulk. Watch The Amazing Bulk. Yeah, you'll get more enjoy. Yeah, watch The Amazing Bulk followed by City of God, and there you are. There's your (laughs) Incredible Hulk film. (laughs) And that's all we have time for on this week's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And you can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at B4Movies. So please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes. Also, if you have the time to help us continue to grow our fan base, please rate and subscribe to our podcast page found in the iTunes store. Join us next week when we'll be taking a bogus journey to hell and back to challenge death to a game of Sabutio. But in the meantime, it's bye from myself and forget about it from Andy. Give it your best shot. <laughs> you old mucker, you shappy can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs>